You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network is brought to you by Onyx Hunt. Bringing you the best GPS mapping software directly to your smartphone or desktop, Onyx offers you the ability to see property boundaries, mark waypoints, track your location, and so much more. Visit onyxmaps.com or you can download it directly from your app store today. Save 20% off of your purchase by using the code NATION20 at checkout. That's capital N NATION followed by the number 20. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. On today's episode, I have Jonathan Bohm, perhaps better known by his YouTube channel, Catman Outdoors. He's been self-filming his hunts for about the past decade and has put together a lot of interesting and entertaining content. We hunted together recently down at Saddlepalooza, and while he has a few DIY videos, fishing, deer, and turkey hunting content, today we focus just on turkey hunting. Anyone who's familiar with the Catman turkey hunting videos knows that he has no problem getting on birds and applying his woodsmanship skills down in the hills of Tennessee. What all states have you hunted in your lifetime turkey hunting? I guess some people might think I've hunted more, but I've only really turkey hunted in Tennessee and Alabama so far. But uh, I'm going to add at least one, maybe hopefully two more, two or three more states this year, depending on what i got time for. Which ones would those potentially be? I'm looking at Wisconsin, most likely. I'll be going up with uh, Shane Simpson. Uh, it could potentially turn into Minnesota, but I'm leaning heavily towards Wisconsin. And uh, after, uh, other than that, I would say it just depends on how my Tennessee season goes because, I mean, if I got tags to burn here at home, I'm going to be hunting here closer to home or at least, you know, within a couple hours of home. And I'll, I'll bounce around quite a bit in Tennessee, but but my main priority once Tennessee opens is filling those tags. And then if I do really good and I tag out a little early, then I'll start looking at some other states, possibly Kentucky or Indiana or, I don't know, maybe Mississippi or I might go back down to Alabama since I'll have my license and, and they've got like five birds you can kill. I'll probably end up going back to Alabama if I do well in Tennessee. Gotcha. It, it seems like even in Tennessee alone, you have plenty of opportunity. How many tags do they end up giving you in Tennessee? It's four statewide. 
and it's been that way. It's been that way as long as I've been hunting. Uh, it used to be two or three, and then they bumped it up to four because their numbers were really good. And uh, that's four bearded birds. And uh, here in the past few years, some people are complaining about seeing a decline in their area and want to see those bag limits lower. So what the future holds, I don't know. But as of right now, we can, kill, we can still kill four bearded birds in the spring. What's the uh, the season days for that? So they vary. They, they're based off of weekends closest to set dates, such as, uh, say, opening day is uh, the Saturday closest to April 1st. So this year that'll be April 4th, and it'll cycle. You know, every year it'll, it'll uh, drop back a day earlier, and then until you get until it resets, you know, just whatever day is closest to April 1st. And then it's a six-week long season, so it ends usually sometime in the middle of May, but it's always six weeks after, you know, it, it closes the Sunday, so full six weeks after opening day. Okay, so that seems pretty similar to how our seasons are typically run. We're just offset by a couple of weeks. Our seasons usually go from about mid-April through the end of May. I got you. With all those different, I guess, tags, and I'm sure you probably have different zones, I would imagine. Is there, I guess, a range of terrain types that you'll end up hunting, or do you prefer a certain type of terrain over another? So, first of all, you said zones. Uh, We don't have zones for spring turkey, which I think we do need zones, considering the decline in a lot of areas. There's There's definitely parts of the state that can sustain a higher bag limit. The turkeys are doing great in some areas, but then we've got some areas that really need attention that they need to really cut back the limit. And they don't manage it like that right now. I think they should because that's how they manage the deer hunting. But uh, I don't know. It's not my decision to make. All I can do is put in a recommendation. Yeah, um, that's interesting. huh? Now, fall season goes by county. And some counties are open and some counties are not open. You know, they used to let you kill a ton of birds hens toms poults whatever and they cut back on that in the past few years they've cut back to any county that's open you can kill one bearded bird in the fall season and so you can go from one county to the next and kill multiple birds but uh it's not really popular fall turkey hunting so you don't see a whole lot of birds get killed during the fall season anyway sure yeah, spring wise it's just the season the season and the bag limits the same across the state as of right now Okay. Yeah, that's, I guess, somewhat, uh, apart from the fact that there's no zones, um, I, I don't know that, well, I guess technically Minnesota just made a big change also this year to where I think they still have zones, but you can basically buy your tag over the counter and you can use it pretty much wherever you want for a lot of the state. So that's that's very different, but we're also a one bird total state for the entire spring, one bearded bird for the spring anyway. Um so yeah. it's funny because there's, there's guys now that are complaining about that and how that's going to wreck the quality of the hunt, making your one tag basically over the counter. Um, but I I don't think it's going to have that big of an impact. But I, I could definitely see how uh, not having zones in your state and also being able to kill four birds, I got to imagine that, yeah, that depending on where you're at and where you get, you know, pockets of hunters, 
you'll see quite a variation in population. And, and of course, some of that's got to do with people killing a lot of toms in the first weekend of season, which is when most of the birds get killed is within the first week. And that's when they're still breeding real heavy. And, and I don't know any numbers-wise, like numbers-wise, what the effect is on the breeding and how many hens get bred. But I think killing a whole bunch of the toms real early probably doesn't have a good effect on the reproduction. Even though toms don't lay eggs, you still want to let them do their thing for a little bit. Mm-hmm. So that could be a potential. That could be a potential factor. Yeah, just having if your population's already suffering, it seems seems to be localized areas. It might be half of a county, it might be a quarter of a county, or it might be a whole county. But you see localized areas where the turkeys just kind of disappear over the course of a couple of years and. They're doing studies on it, and there's a million different theories. And uh, from what I've seen, every theory you can take, whether it be nest raiding predators, coyotes, chicken houses, uh, there's all different types of theories as to what causes big declines in certain areas. But for every uh, everything you can come up with, every theory, you can take that and, and look at another part of the state and say, well, this part of the state has the same thing, but the turkeys are still there. So huh. I don't think anybody's really figured out why the numbers fluctuate like, like they do. Um, it's almost kind of like bobwhite quail. Like we don't have quail like you talk to an old timer, they talk about how bird hunting was the thing, and now you, it's, a, it's pretty cool when you even see uh, or flush a covey because they're not very common anymore, but... I wouldn't say turkey's going that way, but it's definitely something going on, and I don't think anybody's really got to figure it out. Hmm. But I do think bringing the bag limit down in some areas would help. Yeah, it certainly seems like it would. Knowing that, do you do you try and pin or do you try and I guess monitor what areas are doing well and what areas are doing bad, and you know focus your hunting efforts based on that, or do you still try and stick to the same areas that you know? So I'm I'm fortunate that a lot of the areas that are close to where I live have pretty good bird numbers, at least halfway decent, anywhere up to really good numbers. And uh, they seem, I keep an eye on the hatch in the summer and fall, see how many pulps they've hatched out and raised, and it's usually pretty good. So as long as we got good hatch, that's that's going for us. I, I have seen an increase in hunting pressure. Um, I think due to a few different things, mainly social media, people, you know, finding out the good spots and telling all their friends and posting it online. Um, that's kind of, I mean, we kind of need a good hatch for that. But overall, I'd say we've got pretty good, pretty good numbers, you know, around my area in middle Tennessee. So if I, you know, if Turkey numbers are suffering, I'm just not going to hunt there. I'm just going to, I'm going to drive somewhere else. I usually don't have to go very far to find birds. So, yeah, I'm not going to try to kill, like, the only tom out of a, you know, 10,000-acre tract just because he's there, you know. If the the numbers are down, you need to leave him alone, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. And there are some areas, there are some areas that I've deer hunted or small game hunted or whatever that do have lower numbers of birds, and I know they get hunted hard by the locals during turkey season, but I I leave them alone because, I don't have a reason to. I've, I've got other places to go that have more birds, and they have a few more people too. But but you got we got some good habitat. I think you know if, if you're seeing a lot of birds in the winter flocks, and you know that they that they're reproducing well every year, have a good hatch. Then that's that's where I'm. That's where I prefer to hunt. 
Yeah, I suppose that's a really good method of trying to figure out if your area is, you know, good or not. There'd be places, yeah, like around Wisconsin too, where I'll just see, I'll see big flocks all the time and, you know, late fall. And, and that definitely is an indicator that they're, they're hatching well and they're doing well in that area. Yep. Yeah, I was out, uh, last Saturday morning, I was out doing some listening in one of my spots where they went, where they flock up in the winter every year and, uh, just observing the birds and, and, uh, they were seeing them fight and play around a little bit. You know, some of the hens were just chasing each other around and they would flat, they would fan their tail out. And they, a lot of them had those, that Jake fan, meaning they were Jenny's or, or hen poults, last year's hen poults. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and I'd seen that back during deer season too. There was a lot of poults. So they, they had another good hatch and, and they sure need it too, because that, that particular area gets hunted like crazy. Yeah. So that, I like to, if if I know the birds are doing well, that's where I want to be. And uh, not to say I won't hunt a tougher spot. I just don't want to, you know, spend more, putting more effort to kill one bird that might be important to leave that bird, you know. I mean, I guess it just depends on the situation. But like I said, I've got pretty good areas within reasonable drive of where I live. So that's usually what I stick to in Tennessee. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you uh, have bigger or small? I mean, you mentioned that just, you know, 10,000 acre number. Do you have a lot of areas that are pretty big like that? Or is it more broken up where you got a lot of smaller chunks too? Oh, it's kind of all over the map, to be honest with you. Um, Yeah, I mean, 10,000 was just a number that popped into my head. I don't think I hunt anywhere that's exactly 10,000 acres, but I hunt areas that are bigger and smaller, like, uh, significantly bigger and, and significantly smaller. I've hunted some really small tracks. And a lot of our bigger tracks of public, if it's centered around water, say you've got TVA land, Corps of Engineers land, uh, if it's around an impoundment or something, then it's broken up into a bunch of tiny little parcels and, and uh, you're just going to be pretty much hunting around property lines the whole time you're there. But then we do have some bigger chunks that you can take off and walk for miles and, and never hit the property line and never run out of woods to hunt. Do you have a preference of one over the other? Um, I don't know. That's a good question. I, I don't think I do. I think it just depends on, on the habitat and the birds, really. You know, I, I like hunting some of that uh, lakeside property where you don't have much land to hunt, but usually there's birds close by and, and, uh, you call them off of a neighboring private property. I, I have a lot of fun doing that, but that also does restrict your ability to move around and, and cover ground and, and, and get a proper setup on a bird. I've had instances where I couldn't set up the way I wanted to on a bird because of property lines. So I really enjoy hunting that way, but I also like to have a bunch of land to roam sometimes. So I just kind of switch it up, you know, mix things up a little bit, go hunt here one day and go hunt there another day. Yeah, that makes sense. When I think back to some of my biggest frustrations over the years, I think a lot of it can be, at least in you know some regards, stem back to not being able to get a great setup or trying to work a bird over a certain property line and just not having much to work with. And then you're you know pretty much up to the will of the bird, yeah, whether or not you're going to have a successful hunt. That, that, and, uh, that and woven wire fences have screwed up a few really potentially good setups. 
when someone's got a barbed wire, three strand, five strand barbed wire, a tom will cross that. Or if they don't have any fence or if the fence is old and not maintained and it's got gaps, then that's fine. But some people have well-maintained woven wire fences that turkey will just not, like nine times out of ten, will not cross that fence. Huh. And and that can be frustrating. But, I mean, it's kind of, everyone likes their own personal challenge. And for me, I think hunting along smaller strips of public land, trying to find that perfect setup and call a bird off private i think that's one one of my favorite ways to hunt just because i like the the unique challenge of it not because it's easier but it can actually be tougher and more frustrating at times for some of those smaller strips of land i mean especially if it's say around a lake for example is the land layout around that type of an area typically where you have the lake and then you know it's kind of maybe say like a reservoir where all around the shoreline of the lake, you got, you know, hills and ravines and stuff. And, you know, you're yeah. up, your private land is up on the top of the hills and you're basically, you know, on the hillsides in the public. Yeah, that's typically, it, it may range from, you could go, you know, a quarter of the way up the hill and hit the property line, or you could go to the top of the hill and hit the property line, or you might have several ridge tops that are all public. It just depends on, I guess how the property was bought up and deeded way back in the day when they made those impoundments. Do you try and look for one specifically where you're not trying to call the bird downhill if you're accessing from the lake? Oh, ideally, I do not want to call a bird downhill. I'd like to call them around it, around the side of the hill on a point or try to get up on top with them. They, a lot of times they, you know, they'll hang up if you're down low and they get up on the top of the ridge and look down, they either see you or they don't see the hen and they stay up there. So, yeah, yeah I'm, I, and that's another thing that makes the setup difficult with a lakeside hunting like that is, is the terrain and the property lines. Sometimes you can't get on a good level to call a bird in. It's just one of those things you get out there and you just try to make something work. If you get a bird to gobble, you know he's there and you don't want to leave a gobbling bird. So you just try to find the best setup possible. And sometimes it's a perfect setup. Sometimes it's not so great. Sometimes you're just kind of screwed, but you got to give it a go. Yeah. So are you typically accessing from the lake in those type of scenarios? And I guess, would you be, you know, the day before trying to, you know, just sit on the water and just listen for gobbles or try and roost birds and then look at the map and try and figure out if it's something you can make a good setup on or is some of that also being done kind of the day of and just kind of, you know, boating around and listening for, for gobbles and maybe getting out and trying to strike up something from down low and then make a move? It's a little of both. I'll ride around and I'll, I'll listen. If I don't know where I'm going to set up in the morning, I don't know where some birds are exactly are, you know, I'll, I'll go up the lake or I'll go into a cove or I'll go somewhere up the creek arm and, and I'll just park the boat right before daylight and turn the motor off and listen just to get some coordinates on a few birds to see if I can hear some roost gobbling. And, and then I'll pick one to go after and then remember the other ones in case the first bird doesn't work out. I can come back later in the day and try to find those other ones. But then if I've, if I've roosted birds the night before or I'm going after birds that I've hunted in the past, you know, I'll go up and I'll try to find specific birds. Or I may go around midday and bounce from one cove to another and climb up. I, sometimes I'll try to strike one from the boat, but a lot of times I'll climb up on top of the ridge and uh, hit a few calls and see if I can get something interesting. 
Gotcha. For when you hunt on, I guess, bigger tracks of land, is it more flat type of terrain or is it also very hilly and, and steep in those type of bigger chunks where you might have more room to roam around in? It varies. It can be straight ridges and hollows. It could be a little bit of rolling terrain or you could have some river bottom. I mean, like I said, I kind of like to move around and try different terrain. Most of Middle Tennessee has at least got a little bit of rolling hills, and it's got you'll find some flat land, some creek bottoms and river bottoms, but most of the Middle Tennessee area has at least got a little bit of hill to it, if not just straight-up steep ridges and hollows. Gotcha. So would you say, I guess, general rule of thumb, you're always trying to be at least level with the bird, no matter what kind of um, terrain it is, if you got some type of elevation there? Ideally, I'd like to be at least level with him. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't. I'm not against calling a bird a little bit downhill, but you know, if you're down in a hollow and the bird's up on top of a ridge, that's not a good setup, in my opinion. But you know, if you got to call him around the around the corner of a point and you're a little bit lower than him, but he's still going to come around and give you a shot, then that's fine. I mean, it just depends on the the whole setup. You kind of got to eyeball it and having a having some knowledge on the lay of the land definitely helps, you know, scout beforehand or deer hunting it or squirrel hunting it or whatever, get an idea of what the terrain does. That definitely helps pick a setup. Have you ever had any luck trying to call a bird from one ridge over to another? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, uh, there was one lake that I've hunted a couple of times in the past. I, I went out there several years ago and, uh, had never turkey hunted it, only fished out there and, I was going to turkey hunt it this time. I went out there, got out there late at night, set up camp, and first thing in the morning, went up this big, long ridge uh, just to hopefully find a bird gobbling, you know. Had no idea, had no clue if, how many birds there were or if there were any in the area. So long story short, I found a bird that was pretty fired up, but he was over on another ridge on private in a private field. So all I could do was set up on my ridge, you know, we got several hundred yards between us in a big, steep hollow. And he, you know, it was just your your textbook, you know, calling in a gobbler, you know, working with him, going quiet on him. He gobbles a little closer. Sure enough, he dipped down in that bottom, in that hollow between me and him. He, he started gobbling way down in that hollow. And the next thing I know, he was gobbling right in my lap and strutting around 25 yards and I ended up missing that bird. I shot the hickory tree between us. <laughs> he actually went down and then came up versus just flying straight across. Oh, yeah. And and it wasn't like a little ravine where he could w- make more sense just to fly across. It was a pretty big hollow, and, and there was some green on the leaves, so he couldn't see me from across the hollow. I couldn't see him. And he just walked down one hill and back up the other hill, and he was right in my lap strutting. When, when you're in uh, scenarios like that, if you can't hear a hen, let's say you, you know you strike one up or you hear one gobbling or you, you just go into blind to a spot and then you get one to gobble, if you can't hear a hen yelping, when you're going to call to a bird like that, what's your what's your typical um, calling sequence look like? I mean, if let's say you're you're just totally blind, you, you just heard one gobble and that's all you know. 
I'll first I'll try to take his temperature. If he gobbled on his own, I'll see if I can get him to answer a call. If he answered a call once, I'll see if he answers it twice, just to see if he's real responsive or if he's just courtesy gobbling. But regardless, knowing a bird is there and he gobbled, I'm going to go after him anyways. So first thing I'll do is try to get close, close as possible and find a good setup as close as I can without getting busted. And like like with that bird that crossed the hollow, I couldn't get much closer because of the property line, and I didn't want to set up in the bottom of the hollow. But ideally, I would set up a lot closer than that. And I'll just hit him with just basic, just a few yelps, maybe a couple clucks, maybe a couple excited cups. But usually just a few yelps is all you really need if the bird's in the right mood. And if he... If he does happen to have hens, how does that change things? Well, uh, I'll still stay there for a while. I may quit on him sooner if I know he's got hens. If hens start answering back and they never end up coming my way, I'll I'll eventually leave them. Uh, I'll stay with the bird longer if I don't think he has hens. But uh, as for how that changes the outcome, that just depends on how the how the birds respond to my calling you know sometimes the hens will take them the other way usually they'll take them the other way but sometimes you get a hen that kind of gets a little bit annoyed and starts coming after you or sometimes there might be another bird in the group but another tom that breaks off and comes to look for you you just never know so right. i'll at least give it a little time i'll give it a little time and just kind of play around with them and if it just drags on and it's the same old, same old, you know, they're not budging, they're not coming any closer, they're going away, whatever, then eventually I'll leave them alone and try to find another bird that doesn't have hands. Yeah, that makes sense. When you call, you typically go to, I know you like wing bones, do you typically go to that first or do you have, is there a certain mixture that you like to use or a certain call you like to, you know, cut out with first or what's your preference there? So in the in the past few years, I've mainly used the wing bone as my number one call, just out of preference, not because I think it works better, but because I've gotten, I've had good luck with it, and I like to run it. I like the way it sounds. Um, I always have like a mouth call or two for backup in my pocket to switch things up, or if the wing bone call breaks or something. And then uh, sometimes I'll have a, a pot call with me as well. Uh, this year I'm going to try to switch it up a little more to see if that changes things over the past couple of years, just to kind of as an experiment to see, you know, because a lot of people like to switch up calls because sometimes a certain call will, will get a certain bird fired up when you won't answer another call. So yeah, I'll, I'll usually start off with the wing bone. Has there been instances where you've, where you know for sure, like he wasn't responding to say a pot call or something, and then you like, all right, I'll try the wing bone, and he happened to, you know, respond after that uh, to that. Um, I wouldn't say with a pot call over a wing bone, not that I can remember. But then again, I haven't really done enough side by side comparison to really tell. I do remember hunting with a friend a few years ago, and uh, we were running some pot call or something maybe a mouth call i don't remember and uh weren't getting a response and then switched to a wing bone call and and got this hand fired up and she came in looking for us at like 20 yards 
but it wasn't until I switched to the wing bone that we got that response. So I think it depends on the bird and the call and the day. You know, it's a lot of people carry a whole vet full of calls. I'm not looking to do that, but I'm looking to carry at least three, maybe four calls in my pockets this year and, and do a little more experimenting with it. Yeah, it seems like that's always the big trade-off, how many you bring. I, I'm intrigued with the wing bone because that's the, probably the one style of call that I haven't really used much at all. Um, you know, I've obviously lots of diaphragms, pot calls, box calls. I think I've even done some other, like the push button calls. I've tried those too, but I've never, yeah, I've never done the, uh, the wing bone. And if I, I feel like if I did want to do a wing bone, I would want to do it out of a bird that I probably shot. Do you usually use, um, gobbler wing bones or do you try and find hang, hang yeah. wing bones to use? I, I like gobblers better. The, the bones are a little thicker, a little tougher and and easier easier for me to get the right pitch anyways with a with a hand they tend to be a little high pitched and, and you want to cut the segments longer we used to be able to kill a bunch of hens there in the fall season so i have made a couple of hen hen calls in the past and i had to make them a little bit longer but they're still a little more slender and and not as robust as a as a tom i can cut i i can cut without measuring anything i can just eyeball it and cut out the three parts of the tom wing bone and and glue them together and the call usually sounds perfect so that's that's my preference do you have i guess different i guess let's say uh you want to use that wing bone and you want to make different pitches with it can you use the same call and just based on the way you you know actuate the the air going through the call make it either sound like a higher pitch 10 or like maybe some Jake Yelps or something, or would you ideally want to have two separate wing, co- wing bone calls that were maybe cut to different lengths to be able to get those different tones? You can get a different tone out of the same call. You're not going to make a huge variation, but you can, you know, by biting your lip down a little tighter and you make it a little hot, more high pitched. And then, and then if you loosen your, your mouth on it a little bit, you can get a little bit more of a raspy lower pitch Yelp, but, it's not a huge difference with the same call. It's kind of got the same voice, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that uh, makes sense. You can definitely, you can switch between a you know a Jenny yelping fast and a Jake yelping slow, and you can make those two different calls with the same call. But you can't do a, you can't do a whole lot of different vocalizations with the wing bone. Really, the only thing that sounds really good is clucking, cutting, and yelping. I've seen. I've seen guys do purring and gobbling, and it was impressive what they did. I can't really do it, but it still didn't sound good like, say, a mouth call would. I think I think the strong point of the wing bone is, is yelping and clucking mainly. Yeah, and the fact that it's – I think the fact that it's so different, I think, you know, there's not as many guys using it from the unique aspect. Maybe yeah. it helps. Um, and then obviously moisture, I get, I imagine moisture doesn't affect it either. Yeah. With, with, with birds that get called to a lot. Yeah. Definitely can have, give you an edge cause it's something they haven't heard. Now, if, if it were to become popular, then that, that argument wouldn't mean anything because there'd be a lot more wing bone calls in the woods. Um, I don't know if it will get popular or not. I, I mean, definitely there's a lot of people watching my videos that like, like seeing the wing bone. But then again, there's a lot of people who don't care to practice with it. And, and I mean, honestly, you can't make all the sounds with a wing bone that you want to make, like with a pot call or a, or a mouth call. You can just make, you can do a whole lot more with a mouth call or a pot call. 
so it's it's more appealing. So I don't know if it's ever going to really get super popular. Yeah. It's just kind of one of those cool, like novelty type things. And calling in a gobbler with a part of another gobbler you killed is pretty cool to me. So that's why I, that's why I like it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it it seems like to me the mouth call like if you just had one, it's so versatile. I mean, there's literally just about every yeah. possible turkey vocalization could be made with that call. Yeah, mouth call and, and I would say a really good pot call too. And even box calls can make some pretty dang good turkey sounds. Uh but yeah, I'd say most versatile call by far is gonna be the mouth call, I think. Yeah. Yeah, the way the way Shane can use his I was hunting with him last spring in Wisconsin and he was doing his coyote howl as a locator and he was getting birds to gobble on his and it, it sounded pretty decent. Um considering yeah. what it was you know you could do elk calls or whatever just for fun um but it's uh, i wouldn't be surprised if he starts figuring out how to owl hoot with that thing but but uh i wouldn't be surprised either it's <laughs> funny you bring that up because he, he sent me a few mouth calls uh not too long ago and i sent him a video of me running one of them but i was making a chicken cluck with it just because you can you can make so many different sounds uh, I thought it'd be funny to do a chicken clock. You, you can make, I mean, the, people use them out west for elk hunting too. Uh, I'm sure they're cut differently. I don't know much about elk calls, but it's the same type of call, the diaphragm call. You yeah. can make so many different sounds with them. Yep. Usually the ones for elk are, I mean, I guess there are multiple reed calls, but a lot of them are single reed. Uh, and you see a lot more of them with yeah. the domes too, because you don't really need to get that rasp with an elk call. A lot of them are just like a softer yeah. single reed latex to get that nice little like whiny uh, cow sound. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. And even some turkey calls are basic like straight edge two reeds. Like you can make some pretty clean sounds with some of the more basic cut turkey calls too. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I think the biggest thing for me that's really helped my uh, mouth calling with the diaphragm call is just remembering to stick a little, you know, piece of toothpick or whatever up underneath the top reed. Then that just gets rid of that whole issue of, you know, getting it kind of warmed up and getting the, the top reed moving. Yeah, reeds, reeds stuck together. Yeah, that's a big thing. What I usually do with mine if I'm practicing at home is I'll run it under the faucet so the water goes between the reeds and kind of rinses it out so they don't stick as bad. But uh, it's funny, I was talking to Dave Owens asking him how, how he stores his calls and he just put he takes it out of his mouth and puts it back in the in the container like he doesn't do anything to him. So it's and and he's huh. obviously one of the right. best callers out there. So I think that's a matter of preference. I like to keep keep my reeds clean, like you said. Like the toothpick really helps. Yeah, they um, they always but, get stuck for me if I don't do anything. If I just put them back in the container, they'll be stuck together, and I, it'll, I won't be able to yep. get that rasp until I you know been calling for a few minutes. Yeah, you gotta you gotta get it warmed up. Yeah. I, I, I'm with you on that one just because I don't like having to warm it up because I don't, I don't keep it in my mouth the whole time. I, I use it as a backup call mainly. I guess that's why I like to have it ready when I need it. Mm-hmm. Some people, a lot of people just, they put it in their mouth and they take it turkey hunting and keep it there, you know. And I guess if I did that, it wouldn't matter as much, but I do like to keep them, keep them clean and dry so they're, so they warm up quicker. Yeah, that especially makes sense if you're using it as more of your secondary with that wing bone as the primary. Yeah. This year, I'm not sure. I, I'm still going to use the wing bone a lot, but I might switch it up a little more and use more mouth call and more pot calling 
than I usually do just to see if it makes a difference. How do you, uh, when you were using the wing bone, how do you store that thing? Do you have it on like a, a neck lanyard or do you keep it in the pocket? How do you keep that thing from dangling around and making noise? It, it's just on a lanyard on my neck, and as long as there's nothing else on my neck, it doesn't make any noise. And uh, when I set up on a bird, or if I'm doing something real strenuous where it'll swing around a lot, like climbing a hip, steep hill or something, I'll, I'll tuck it inside my shirt. Okay. But especially when I'm set up on a bird, because it, it, I don't have it colored or painted or anything, so it's bone white. And, you know, it most of the time won't matter, but you get a bird that's kind of suspicious and he sees that white bone move a little bit as you're getting your gun ready i mean it could potentially spook a bird so i'll i'll tuck it inside my shirt uh when i'm set up on a bird uh but mostly it just hangs there on my neck on a lanyard okay do you ever do any artsy stuff with your or your uh wing bone calls or just you just always use your yeah standard uh, well, for me personally, when I'm hunting, I'm still, I don't know how I'm still in one piece, but I've, I'm still using the same call I made in from uh, a bird I shot in 2013. I think it was the second wing bone call I had ever made. And I've, I've had to, I made it with super glue. And I found out later on down the road to use epoxy, but uh, I've re, I've had to re-glue it a couple of times, but since then it's stayed pretty solid and, I guess this will be, uh, yeah, I started hunting with it in 2013 and it's 2020 now, so I've had it for like seven years now. But uh, I have made some fancy calls. I've done the feather, the hackle feather inlay and some some copper thread and, and done the epoxy coat where it's real clear and glossy looking. Yeah. And I usually end up selling those. Uh, they sound perfectly good. I, mean, I make sure every call that I sell sounds as good as the one that I hunt with, you know, I'll make sure they all sound good, but I have made some much nicer calls that I, I just don't care to hunt with really. And I'll, and someone else would rather buy it and, and use it as a collectible or maybe even hunt with it themselves. So I'll just, I'll end up selling all of those, but I might make one for myself someday just to have it. But I mean, I, I yeah, guess I it goes, know. I guess it goes without saying, but you're obviously, you know, pretty mobile and, and, you know, run and gun style when you turkey hunt. Do you like to just use a, a vest when you go turkey hunting? Or do you carry a little, you know, anything to sit on like a little you know miniature stool or anything like that? Or what's kind of your, I guess your full kit when you go out in the woods? I don't even use a vest. Honestly, I've, I've got whatever fits in my cargo pockets and a wing bone call around my neck. And a shotgun slung over my shoulder and my camera and tripod in my right hand. Very minimalist. <laughs> yeah, I don't like carrying a lot of stuff. The tripod is the biggest burden, honestly. And I'm not going to quit filming. I love filming, but I wish I didn't have to carry that tripod and camera around. I, you know, the most ideal way to turkey hunt to me would just be put whatever calls and a couple snacks or whatever you need, some TP, put it in your pocket and grab your shotgun and go hunt. That's, that's the way, that's the best way I would, I'd like to do it if I didn't film. Yeah. Yeah. Last, uh, last year toward the end of the season, I got to the point where I just left the camera at home and just went out to try and kill a bird. And 
It was really nice yeah. just doing a, uh, what, what I used was a, a bino harness and you know, it had little side pockets and things like that. So I was able to keep my tags in there. Um, cell phone, I had a little, one of those little gobbler totes, you know, the, the paracord woven thing that you'll be, you know, can throw a bird over your shoulder with, um, mouth calls, had a pot call in there. I don't think I had a box call in there, but basically like, like you said, just about anything you'd need. Um, and then I carried a, a decoy too in a decoy bag. Um, so I guess that was a little bit extra, but then just, you know, basically sat on the, sat on the hard ground or whatever, whenever I needed to set up. Mm-hmm. I, I predict as I get older, you know, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the road, I'll probably want to carry a cushion with me at least. Some of the nicer turkey vests have a kickstand for a backrest, which is really nice. But as long as I'm still getting around just fine, I'm, I'll just I'll plop down under a tree somewhere. It might not be the most comfortable place to sit, but when I've when I got a gobbler on the mind, it doesn't really matter too much because I'm hopefully going to not sit there too long and end up killing them or go and find another bird. Yeah. Do you ever use decoys at all? Or are you pretty much just trying to call them over the terrain? I have never carried decoys hunting. I, I mean, I'm not against it, but I just don't care to. I like to make them come look for me. There's a couple exceptions, a couple instances where I tried the fanning deal, which, I mean, if you haven't tried it, it's pretty cool. You got to be careful about where you do it. I've only ever done it on private land where you can see a long ways and you know there's not a problem with trespassers or mainly poachers you don't want someone shooting at you uh so a couple couple of instances i've tried it just to you know just to see how it was and it was pretty cool but then you know the novelty wore off and i went back to hunt the same way i do so other than holding up a tail fan uh, a couple of times on a dominant bird i haven't used any decoys so i guess talk about that a little bit because i mean obviously that's a that's another element being able to set up properly so that you don't get hung up on if you're not using decoys. So when you're doing a setup, how do you try and pre-plan exactly what needs to happen and where you need to sit and where the birds are going to come from in order to make sure you're going to be able to get a shot opportunity? Ideally, there's got to be something between me and him where he's not going to come into view where he can see my position until he's in shotgun range, ideally. Uh, it doesn't always work out that way. It just depends on what you got to work with and where the bird's at. But, uh, let me say it could be a little bit of terrain or a thicket, or a bunch of buck brush. It, it could be anything, you know, it could be, a, you could be set up in a ditch or uh, another thing that I, that I often forget about is, uh, with a field bird, you know, there's nothing between you and the bird, but if the bird's on the edge of the field and you can get in that same fence row that he's up next to and call him down the edge of that fence row, that's another, that's a way to call in a field bird where he has to come closer to, to you know, to look for you. But um, just whatever's available, really. I, I don't want him to be able to see my position until he's in shotgun range. Okay. Yeah, that makes, I mean, that seems like a pretty common answer. And it's obviously obviously works yeah and it doesn't always work and that's part of turkey hunting sometimes they hang up anyways and and, uh, sometimes they'll come in the wrong way catch you by surprise and bust you or whatever but that's just part of turkey hunting is learning as you go and figuring out you know like the most probable 
setup, or he's most likely going to come in and give you a look and give you a shot. What kind of shotgun are you using? I'm shooting a uh, Remington 870 Super Mag Turkey Edition. It's uh, It's got Mossy O, I don't know, Obsession or something. It's dipped, and it's got a it's got the thumb hole stock, which is nice. I like that. Um, I bought I bought it used off of a guy, and I put a uh, True Glow gobble stopper red dot sight on it, which I'd never when I started turkey hunting. I didn't care to use any kind of optic, but I'm not the best shot when a gobbler's standing there. And I thought changing optics a few times would help, and I've upgraded three or four times with optics and. And I really like the red dot sight. It has not made me shoot any better, but I'm going to stick with it because I like it. How's the battery life on that thing? Long long time. I think it takes a, 30, a 2032 or uh, whatever those big flat button cells are. Yep. And so you can buy those button cells in like two packs or four packs from the grocery store or Walmart or anywhere. So I'll just make sure there's a fresh battery in there before season and turn it off after i'm done hunting i know some people don't even turn it on until they're fed up on the bird uh i usually leave it on the whole time just because you know i want to have it ready to go but they last a long long time on those little batteries they don't they don't take much power at all yeah i'm thinking about maybe getting uh, you know some type of red dot for myself or at least for my wife's shotgun i started using that thing last year simply because it was so compact and light. It was just one of those like Mossberg 510 youths uh, that had a super short stock yeah. and the barrel's like 18 inches or 18 and a half or something like that. So you don't have to worry about like, you know, crawling through stuff and getting the barrel hung up on stuff, which was nice. Um, but then the thing was with the bead on that particular gun, I had to bury it so deep to be able to hit what I was aiming at. I pretty much couldn't see the front bead at all. And then I would still hit a little bit, a little bit off. So I think I might just install a, a red dot on it just to, to make sure it's it's yeah. good yeah and, and this that's another thing this gun has it's got the side saddle mount on the receiver for the for the red dot side mm-hmm. and that side saddle mount has a gap between the top of the receiver and the bottom of the scope where you can use your bead and that gun has a mid bead too so it's got two beads so if the battery were to die, I can still aim it like a rifle and use the use those bees to shoot. Oh, that's a, that's nice. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That, cause that's like one of the big fears you could have. Do you run out of battery or breaks or something? Yep. Exactly. That's the main reason why I never wanted to try Red Dot. And once I tried it, I really liked it because of the way it aims and you, the way you got, you know, like a little red crosshair in, in the case of the, the side I'm using. It's got a little red little red circle with a little crosshair in it and uh just being able to put that right on a bird's neck is just uh, it's cool you don't have to have the gun perfectly shouldered to aim because the dot's always on target yeah that's crazy how that works yeah yeah i like it now it didn't help me like i said it didn't help my shooting ability i still you know i'm i killed uh four birds last year i think i missed three different times in Tennessee, you only killed three in Tennessee last year. Uh, just, you know, jerking the trigger, getting excited, whatever, having a gobbler standing there at 20 yards. You know, I'll go out back and shoot paper, and it's, it shoots good. And I'll get I'll make sure that red dot sighted in, but then you got a gobbler standing there. 
that's a that's a different story. You asked Shane Simpson all about that. He likes to bring that up a lot. <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing some footage from last year, I think. Yep. That was a good time. It was a bad time for me, but it was a good time. <laughs> Do you ever look into all that uh all the new like super shot loads, the tungsten with the smaller the smaller pellet size I've, or Yeah, I've debated it just because of the pellet count having that many pellets is really appealing and the fact that you can use a less constricted choke and have a more open pattern at close range but still hold a killing pattern out to 40 yards. I think that's really appealing. And I'm not going to say I won't try it, but as of right now, my plans this year are just to keep shooting the lead loads that I've been shooting because when I hold the gun where it's supposed to be, they kill just fine. So I think this year I'm going to focus on practicing my aim and and making better shots, and then down the road sometime I might give those tungsten loads a try. I mean, Shane might talk me into trying them when we hunt. I don't know because he's been, he's been mentioning it quite a bit. Um, but as for, you know, just for right now, I'm just planning on shooting the Winchester double X and uh, just practicing holding that, holding that gun steady and, and killing every bird that I'm trying to kill. Nice. That sounds like a solid plan. I hope it is. I'm ready to get after him either way. Yeah, well, when you come up to uh, Wisconsin, or, or if you're going to even do Minnesota, too, we'll have to we'll have to meet up with Shane and, and you know, try and get all three of us down there. That'd be fun. That'd be awesome. I'm looking forward to that. Now, that'll be during the late season, in mid, middle to late May. Yep. Uh, um, if I don't tag out early in Tennessee, I'll be hunting all the way to the end of Tennessee season, which is in the middle of May. Uh, ideally, that won't be the case, and I'll get to hunt somewhere else, you know, yeah. later in this season. And then, then because that last segment of, of uh, Minnesota or, I guess, Wisconsin is where I really would like to go, but either state, we'll get to that last segment is when I'm going to come up there with Shane, and hopefully we can, we can all meet up and put a few birds down. Yeah, it's definitely doable. There's a lot of, a lot of birds, and the habitat's good, and late season like that, there's definitely not nearly as many hunters it's very green but yep. you're able to find birds yep. that haven't same been, way. been hunted yep. the same way down here uh it, it is um, we do have a, quite a bit of hunting pressure down here i'm not sure i'm not sure what your pressure is like up there compared to here but i mean in the southeast is kind of like turkey hunter central i think we've got more turkey hunters than a lot of the country and it get it gets pretty ha- pretty hammered during the first few weeks of season, especially that first week or two. And uh, so late season, it can be hard to find a bird. But when you do, you know, a lot of times he's he's hot and he's looking because all the hands are nesting. So that, that late season that late season should be fun. If we can find some birds, it, it, it ought to be, uh, I'd, I'd like to think it'd be some pretty good hunting. Yeah, definitely can be. Uh, we're the same way. It's, you know, first couple weeks is usually – when you get a lot of the pressure uh, before everything starts greening up a lot of times even first season we'll still have snow on the ground uh, but by the time it rolls around to late may guys are guys are fishing because our fishing opener is like mid-may um, so guys yeah. are out there trying to catch walleyes and things like that and you got memorial day weekend and you know people are doing other things yeah we don't have a fishing season here i mean you can fish whenever you want pretty much but 
but we do have, you know, the crappie come up to spawn and a lot of guys will give up turkey hunting for crappie fishing. I know that. Um, and, and then bass fishing too, just bass tournaments and just fishing the spawn for bass as well. There's a lot of guys who turkey hunt a few times, maybe a couple of times and then go fishing the rest of the spring, which I don't blame them for it, but it, it definitely helps, you know, take some pressure off the, off the public land anyways. But then you, I don't know if you see this up there, but we still have diehards, just a few diehards that go throughout the whole season. I guess like myself, there's always a few guys out there, even even into the last weekend of season. You'll still see a few people. Yeah, we still got a, we got a few like that too. The nice thing is, I mean, usually you're, there's few enough of those guys that you kind of, you see them, you know, tip your hat and, you know, find someplace else because there's enough room to kind of spread out by that point. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess that goes back to a lot of the broken up land that I hunt that's not one big continuous tract where it's all spread out into smaller parcels. It can get tough with that because those small parcels have been wore out and and the good spots are the ones that people are still hitting late season. And so it can actually be hard to find a bird late season in, in places like that because, you know, the birds have found their sanctuary on other properties where they're just kind of chilling because nobody's messing with them over there. So it can be tough depending on the, on the tract of land you're hunting. Yeah. We'll get some spots where it'll be kind of like that, where you got, uh, you know, either water and private land and, you know, tougher access and a lot of the land will get hit pretty hard throughout the season, but then there's little pockets that are just, either super hard to access or this, that, and the other. And, and the birds will end up, a lot of them will get pushed in these little pockets. Um, and you can get into those and have some pretty good late season hunts because you're probably going to be the first guy back there all season if you can get in there. Um, but then, yeah. but then there's, I, I kind of like almost by that time, just getting to some of the bigger stuff. Cause then you can just play in a whole day and you just cover, you just walk the entire day and just, you know, run and gun until yeah. you hopefully you know, hear a bird gobble or strike one up or something and you can just be on new stuff, you know, pretty much the entire time. Yep. But it sounds pretty comparable up there. Aside from things greening up a little later, it sounds pretty comparable, uh, where you're at to, to down here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Oh yeah. I'm, I'll tell you what, I can't wait. Do you have uh let me ask you a question. Do you, do you have any out of state hunts planned this year before your season opens? No, not this year. Uh, and part of the reason is I have a pretty, pretty heavily loaded, uh, fall hunting season. So a lot of my PTO is planned for that as opposed to I got uh, PTO you. for Turkey. I'd like to go out to do a South Dakota trip. I'd like to go, you know, Missouri would be a fun place to turkey hunt. I'd like to go to like Tennessee or Kentucky or something like that. Nebraska would be fun. Um, they have an earlier yeah. you know, season too, but yeah, a lot of it just comes down to how much PTO I got. And the thing too is with Wisconsin, you can buy as many tags as you want basically for the later season. So I can, if I want to shoot birds, I can shoot as many birds as, you know, as I, or I can attempt to go after as many birds as I would want to. I guarantee if I lived up there, that's what I'd be doing. I'd, kill as many as i could eventually they'd have to be cutting back on the limits because people start catching on to that and, and probably traveling to hunt more but as long as they got that those extra tags i'd be 
I'd be taking full advantage of that. Yeah, as long as I can remember, I don't think they've ever sold out of like the last, you know, last week's last week's season's worth of tags in a lot of the zones. Some some of the zones in the state they'll sell out of, but the ones that have higher bird populations, usually like the last two weeks, you know, they'll have leftovers for, for quite a long time. And then the last week, I don't know if I've ever seen it actually sell out in some of those zones. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I've heard. Uh, here's a question for you on that. Uh, do you think the population can sustain all those extra tags being used if they did sell out? Well, I think if they did sell out, there's that potential for sure that they might need to change stuff up. But I mean, we've had that same structure for as long as I've been turkey hunting over there. And it definitely seems to be at least as many birds now as there were back when I started turkey hunting. I mean, you're going to have ups and downs and, and swings like that. But I mean, like, for example, when I was, um, I was trying to do a fall hunt, uh, was it two years ago in one of the spots that I deer hunt in quite a bit. And I saw, I believe it was 76 in a flock on this, you know, small little piece yep. of public that they're all flocked up in. And that's not super uncommon to see flocks, you know, of that size in the winter. Yep. That sounds like about like around here. The winter flocks really get you your blood pumping. I've, I think the most I've seen, I think one there was one time in January, and this is one of the winter holes where I see them every year in the wintertime. I think there was one time I I quit counting at about 100, and there was twice as many as I counted. Yeah. And and it can vary from one day to the next. Sometimes, you know, there it'll be like three or four smaller flocks in one field, so it's like kind of like one big flock of 200. But some days you'll have some of those smaller flocks will be up in the woods somewhere, so you won't always see that many at once. But when you do, it's like, dang, you think, you think there's really so many turkeys which is a good number of birds, but then come come the first first week of season, there'll still be some of those birds will still be there, but they're already starting to break up on their own, and then you got a whole bunch of guys come in open weekend, start messing with them. Uh, some of the toms will get killed, and then they'll start to really, really disperse after that. After the first week of season, it's just night and day from those big winter flocks. You go, you go to seeing nothing but maybe a couple of hens looking for a place to nest. Yeah, I think like you mentioned earlier, a lot of it around here kind of just hinges upon how much hunting pressure a certain certain spot will get and how yep. much land there is. You, know, you get some of those small it's, spots. It's they crazy get... how, yeah, it's crazy how the pressure will change things within a week's time, and and at, and that's in addition to uh, to the birds just fighting and breaking up on their own. You know, dispersing. You know, you know Tom's start the more dominant toms getting their little groups of hens and the satellite birds spreading out uh so that just adds to it but yeah the pressure definitely pushes them quicker than anything and you go out you know i'll go out there i was out in this one spot where they winter all the time uh, and i filmed a bunch of birds and and uh i'm going to be posting it on youtube pretty soon as a season trailer uh just because of all the gobbling and strutting and everything uh, just to, you know, get everyone fired up, but just wait till the first week of actual turkey season. It'll, it'll change completely. You know, it's one of those spots and they've got, they don't, they can go pretty short way in any direction and end up on a different piece of private property, depending on which way they go. 
Yeah, it's it's fun to watch them in the winter like that, and it, it makes you it makes you feel it makes you feel bad sometimes when you're you're sitting there in the spring, like you said, let's second or third season or something, and you're struggling to strike up a bird, and you're like, man, like yep. what happened? to All these birds you know over the winter, yeah, right? Exactly. It's it's it, it's literally like you you know they're there because every year the same thing happens, but when you're out there trying to strike a bird up, you're walking around the property lines trying to call one off a of private or something, and you just can't get one to gobble because the the ones that survived have, have gotten a little shy to calling where they won't just gobble right back at you most of the time. And, mm-hmm. and you start to wonder, is there even a freaking turkey in here? <laughs> and then, then you come into deer season and then post-deer season in the winter and you're going out there squirrel hunting or whatever and and there they are again, and they've got a whole new, a whole new batch of poults made up, ready for the spring. You know, you can tell they're doing good, but they definitely get affected by pressure quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And and for some reason too, I've noticed in the places around me, sometimes it's more than just pressure. Sometimes even if they've been pressured a lot early season, and then late season they'll get pressured a lot you'll have just mornings with, I don't know if it's the weather, if it's the barometric pressure, what it is where you'll get like, there's like six or seven times you can hear all from the same spot, you know, all different locations. It'll be like that for like, you know, a day. And then you'll hear like maybe four gobble the next day. And then like the next day after that, like nothing, like you just can't buy a gobble, but you know, they're there. So it's like, I don't know what exactly that, if anybody's ever pinpointed exactly what, factors you know truly make birds gobble or not weather wise but i think it might it might have something to do with the barometric pressure i haven't looked into it enough i don't know but what i with that type of thing when turkeys do something you really can't figure out i I always just say that's turkeys being turkeys whether there's a scientific explanation or not turkeys are unpredictable sometimes they're just going to do something you didn't expect them to do yep makes them seem smarter than they are it does. That's for sure. They're not smart, but they're they got a mind of their own. That's for sure. And it, it you you can get outsmarted. I've heard. I don't remember who said this, but it's true. It, people say they get outsmarted by a turkey, but they didn't really. You just got outdumped. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. I mean, they're they're not just they're not sitting there laughing at you, trying to play some kind of game of chess with you. They're just doing something different that you don't think they're going to do just because they, they kind of just the, the way they are, they live in the moment and they do what they want. And sometimes they're in a, you know, sometimes they're frisky and sometimes they're real quiet. It's just, I don't know if it's weather related or pressure or a combination of things, or if turkeys just have mood swings like people. I don't know. Yeah. Makes it, makes it fun though. Keeps it, uh, keeps it interesting. Mm-hmm. I was going to say that that's part of the fun of it. You have, you know, obviously the, the Catman outdoors, you know, YouTube channel and whatnot, where are all the platforms that people can find out about, uh, either your videos or your, your Instagram feed or anything like that. So on YouTube, it's Catman outdoors and, uh, Instagram is at Catman five, two, nine. Facebook is Catman outdoors. And uh, I've got a website, catmanoutdoors.com as well. And that's where I will sell any kind of merchandise or turkey calls that I might be selling. Also have a couple of recipes, uh, 
going to start working on some more recipes and, and adding more content to the website. But uh, most of the content you will see will be on YouTube and Instagram as well as Facebook. But I do have a website and everything as well. So if you check it out, uh, I appreciate it. That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content from Bobby Boswell or myself, subscribe to DIY Sportsman and Boudreaux Boswell on YouTube. And with that, thanks for listening.